Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie, and on this episode, we are doing the 43rd Best Picture winner, Patton. Patton is a 1970 biographical war film about American General George S. Patton during World War II. It stars George C. Scott in the title role, which get ready for us to mess up those names a couple times since they're so I mean, so we're just going to call him George, right? Uh, I'm, I'm down, honestly, to just call him George. It also stars Carl Malden as General Bradley. We probably would recognize him from On the Waterfront, where he played Father Barry. Also starring Michael Bates and Carl Michael Vogler, or Vogler. It was directed by Franklin J. Schaffer, Schaefer, I can't read my own writing. One of those two. It was a, the script was by Francis Ford Coppola and Edmund H. North, and it is based on the biography of Patton by Ladislas Farrego and Omar Bradley's memoirs. So notably, the Patton family did not allow the production access to Patton's journals. So it's, you know, we don't really know as far as like, the real Patton, mm -hmm. kind of what his thoughts and stuff were during this time. Um, I do want to be very upfront with saying, like, as we talk about this movie, as with every biopic we've done, we are discussing these people in terms of the character of that person in this movie. Yes. And I have thoughts about the character. <laughs> yes. Oh, I do too. But neither of us know enough about these people historically yes. or obviously personally to be able to make any like grand sweeping statements about them. So everything we say, whether we like someone or dislike someone, we are talking about their characters in this exactly. movie. And really quick, I did look up the director. It's Schaffner or Sh Sh Schaffner. 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 Wow. I need to write that. <laughs> I was, I, you can tell that I was rather emotional during this movie because my handwriting's extra bad. Um, Bradley did serve as a consultant on the film, though, as far as I could tell, like the extent to which he was actually able to influence things is debatable. Mm -hmm. And it was filmed mostly on location. I think it was six countries total, but mostly in Spain, which I think makes all the difference because there's so much action outside. And I think the way, like, the visual effects I'm sure we'll talk about are great. The way they stage and shoot a lot of that stuff is really mm -hmm. great. And I think the fact that it's, like, all outdoors and practical makes all and the that, difference. And that, I really, it took me a while to notice it. But in the scenes with the snow in the wintertime in Germany, that's when I finally was like, oh, wait a second. They are, like, exploding gigantic trees for real. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's this whole new layer to it. Um, other awards and nominations. So George C. Scott won for Best Actor and became the first person to decline an Oscar. Uh, I, I'm sorry, what? Why? <laughs> um, I don't, I didn't write down his exact words, but it was something along the lines of he was like, it's just like a parade and like corporate bullshit, which I think is kind of funny and I like. Ugh. <sighs> I mean, if I ever was not like what an Oscar, I would not turn it down. Well, and the, the question <laughs> I mean, is, if you turn it down, do you, are you technically still the winner of it? Like, yeah, you still technically won it, but you just didn't accept it. Well, hey, that's what makes him happy. Yeah, I mean, go for it. I could, I could see that. Although, honestly, on the heels of like some of those things that won in the 1960s, I'd be like, this means nothing anymore. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what he was that's thinking. Fair. 
it won for best director it won for best original screenplay it won for best film editing it won for best sound it won for best art direction and then it was nominated for best cinematography best visual effects and best music original score. i am on board with literally all of that i think with this movie i loved the way it looked I loved the patriotic themes they brought in in the soundtrack that were just familiar enough. The score is so It's Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, it's so, so, so good. So I, literally all of my gripes with this film have to do with the character of Patton. But even the performance is amazing. Like, I I cannot find really any other fault except that. I hate the character. Well, and that's the whole thing is I'm like, I hate the character, but I hate the character because George C. Scott did such an amazing job with the way he performed this particular mm-hmm. character. So like, that's why I like, it made me feel negative things, but it made me feel them very strongly. <laughs> and that's, you know, saying something. Right. Like it, it really is. Like it made me think about stuff a lot. Like when I'd get angry, I was like, Hey, well, why do I feel this way about this thing that he just did? And so I think even if a movie frustrates you, if it's frustrating you because it's making you think, mm-hmm. then I think that's a that's that's fine. Oh, totally. Agreed. If it's frustrating you because it's just terribly put together, that's <laughs> all the kings meant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that is not why this movie frustrated us. Um, it is number eighty nine in the American Film Institute's original top one hundred. Patton is the number 29 hero on AFI's Heroes and Villains, though I would argue potentially could also be a villain. I see him more as the villain in this film. I would say hero, but a very flawed hero. Yes. And it's almost like his heroes. frankly, a more interesting agreed. hero. And I think his heroism is one-dimensional. Like, there's, there's one it's thing. A very, it's a very simplistic, old-school death. His it, I mean, even the character's definition of what it means to be a hero is very mm-hmm. old school and one dimensional. And there's actually a line where I think um, it the German soldiers are doing like background research on this new commander. And one of them explains that Patton is I think he says he's a 16th century man in the 21st century. And I feel like that was such an apt description for that character. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Yeah. Other nominees from that year. Airport, Five Easy Pieces love story and the movie that i wish had actually won (laughs) mash well and you watched mash after this as a palate cleanser didn't you i did i immediately watched mash and i will say there are things about mash that are problematic and don't super hold up but it's in the same way that there's like things about animal house that are problematic and don't hold up but it's like that kind of vibe yeah but it it had more of the mash had more of the like social commentary anti-establishment vibe of what I want from my 70s war flicks. Yeah, yeah. Because I have to say, this felt like, moving into Washington, this felt like a more traditional, more stereotypical war film than any of the other war films we've watched for this podcast, I think. I totally agree. It it was so focused on literally the acts of war of this one general, as opposed like to the, the people. It's so focused on exactly. battles. Yes, very um, true. Um, though it is a different look, though, than any of the other ones we have had in that it is you're looking at war through the eyes of these top commanders. So, you know, you have Patton who struggles a lot with the also the geopolitical concerns and like the politics of war, which I I mean, I get him being frustrated with them. That that is mm-hmm. very frustrating. And I think it's very frustrating when you're like, oh, people died because like this person wanted to do it this way and this person wanted to do it another way. And they had to go with the way that was technically less good because of like 
they needed to help somebody save face. Like, yeah, that's frustrating. But also Patton makes really bad decisions based on like his own narcissism and like want for glory. But I do think that's a very different view from everything we've seen is we kind of see like the chess game of war. And we also get to see who was the top German commander, uh, Mm -hmm. Rommel, who went up against both Patton and Montgomery a lot. So we're really seeing not only like Patton and like Bradley, but we're also seeing like some of the British commanders and who kind of get treated not super well in this film. Yeah, that I... uh, I'm not... Are are you surprised though? I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, but and then we also see kind of the German command. So we're seeing kind of what all the different concerns are at that level. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's a different take. But I still I here's the thing and Maggie knows this. Like I've um I did go into this with a different mindset because I've softened my stance on my opinions of war films cuz like I've seen plenty Bridge of good ones that take a view of things that I think is is particularly like it's inventive and it doesn't focus purely on like here is the glorious blindly patriotic xyz of war that that that's the sort of mentality that I don't like um it doesn't it doesn't a lot of the ones that we've watched don't soften right. war they I think they do a good job of like portraying to you the horror of it and I think there are parts of this one that also convey like how horrible war is and i think that there is at least in the first half i don't think they do it as much in the second half and it this is where i started to get even more frustrated but i think especially in the first half they are good about saying like Patton's very good at what he does he doesn't really care about the people yeah and actually my number one no that i have multiple times is don't act like you fucking care (laughs) (laughs) yes agreed so well, I I say we jump into watch notes because I think we are kind of knee deep in them already. And that opening scene is, I think, quintessential Patton with the like three story, 48 star American flag. It's absolutely iconic. And you don't realize how big it is until he mm-hmm. enters. And then he's like... A stripe tall, just one stripe. Well, maybe two or three, but. <laughs> yeah, I would recommend everybody, like, if you see the image, you will mm-hmm. know it. It is absolutely iconic and it is beautiful. I do think that the rest of the movie kind of pales in comparison to that first bit because it's so incredibly yeah. tight and so just like different and the cinematography feels so cool. But it's a great, great bit where you have Patton and all of his regalia. He's giving a speech, and the speech he is given giving is supposed to be to the Third Army before the invasion of Normandy. Mm, okay. So it's this like huge, rousing, patriotic speech, and it can come off a little blustery. like blustery. That's literally what I yes. wrote in my notes. Little little blustery and bellicose, but I think thinking about the purpose of that speech and when it's supposed to be happening mm-hmm. is important because you have a bunch of young soldiers a lot of whom have never fought before who you're about to send into what they used to call or what they called fortress europe Mm -hmm. because it was so well defended and people were like it's going to be awful and so hard if at all possible to even get in there so i think having that context for it i i'm willing to forgive some of yeah some of the phrasing and some of the stuff he says i think I agree. And I mean, at the same time, too, Patton's a blustery person. Like, this is mm-hmm. this is exactly what I would expect from him. Like, throughout the entire movie, he is consistently 
blustery. And that's all that I can, like, the I did, can't think of a better word. No, I think that's a good description. It is a good character yes. introduction, yes. for sure. And I mean, the exit, too. The way he just walks down the stairs and just kind of, like, fades down below the flag. Like, I do kind of yeah. like how that set up the the symbol is bigger than the man in this context. And I feel like to some extent he believes that. And some of the words he's talked about with the United States never backing down and never losing a war at that point and all of that. Yes, but he only likes it as long as everybody's focused yeah, on that's him. True. When he has to actually step back and be a team player, he pitches a fan. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I love, I do think it's a great open. It's like one of the great movie openings. It is incredibly cool. And I love that it comes before any credits mm-hmm. roll. But it is literally the first thing that happens. I think that's great. And then you have the credits roll, so you can kind of process this really cool mm-hmm. thing you just saw. And then you're in Tunisia. And we immediately move into like actual some like horrible mm-hmm. war stuff that has happened. We get a great setup for Bradley's character and how he is a foil to Pepper. Oh, yes. Because we see the aftermath of a total routing of American soldiers. I... Mm-hmm. I take a little bit of issue with kind of how they portrayed the local population. Exactly. Me too. They do have, there is the one American general who's with Bradley who says something about like, well, they need food and clothes. Like there's a problem with the way they're portraying it. Like they could have, they could have just had like the aftermath and not included Mm -hmm. like locals, like taking shoes from bodies and stuff. But at least I feel like there's no judgment on them. Yeah, well, I think by their presence, there is some judgment, but at least it is not as bad as it could have been. And like you said, low bar, low bar. Just because it's not not as bad as it could have been doesn't mean it's good or okay. Yeah, Bradley's comment about 1,800 men, like, he gets it. Bradley thinks about it in terms of cost of human life. Like, Bradley cares about the casualties. Bradley is still an incredibly good general. He's still going to, he still makes a tough decision. There's a line that he says later to Patton that is so perfect at summing up the two of them as characters and their differences. And Bradley says, I do this job because I was trained to do it. You do this job because you love it. Yeah. And I I think that's such an important distinction between the two of them. And I think that's why Bradley actually becomes technically more successful and rises above Patton and becomes in charge of Patton is because Bradley never forgets the cost. Like Bradley will win you that war and he will, even when Patton's been an absolute asshole, Bradley will still get him back in the field if he thinks Patton's the one who can do the job that's going to win them the war. But Bradley will never forget what the human cost was, Mm -hmm. which I think makes him a better leader. Totally agree with that. It's like you can't expect people to go die for you if you don't acknowledge that they are human. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All of the people. Patton's one fucking aide who's just a suck up the whole time and I hate him. Oh, Codsworth. I don't care. Codsman I never learned Codsworth his name. Or... Not worth it. I, oh, God. Oh my I hated God. him I, so one much. One of my notes is he is the worst kind of enabler. I was like, can you get your head out of Patton's ass? Like, please, for five <laughs> seconds. But like, the having all of that stuff when he was like, we all like would work for you anytime and all that stuff. I was like, I'm not completely buying this. Like, especially there's the one soldier who's like, after he leaves in Sicily, he like drives away in his Jeep. And that one soldier's like, there's 5,000 men who want to shoot that son of a bitch. I was like, yeah, I was like, when you have a leader, the way that this character is being a leader, I was like, that's the sentiment that I feel like seems more realistic and not the 
guy being like, but the men love you, sir. It's like, no, they think you're fucking nuts, but they have no option but to do what you say. Right. And just Your hope that they're one of the people like, who doesn't power. die. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I patent, patent, that's basically the, the crux of my issue with him. Now, again, yeah. going back to how the film kind of introduces him, I loved the series of kind of vignettes. I think th- they use this technique a couple places where it will be like shorter scenes showing different aspects of Patton doing something or the Germans doing something. And in, in this mm-hmm. particular scene, it's where he's coming to the, I believe it's the base in Morocco. Um, yeah. it's the, He's looking at like the Moroccan army parade and he's, it's in such juxtaposition to Bradley yeah. who's just out on the battlefield talking about how bad the casualties are and being like, we got to do something because like we can't go up against Rommel and have this happen again. Like I'm worried versus Patton who's at this military parade and is just so focused on how the soldiers look. Well, and he wants that ticker tape parade. It comes back later in, in the movie as well, where he talks about the parade that the, the Roman triumphs, which he then tells us what a Roman triumph is. Dude, we all know what a Roman triumph is. Don't condescend. But that's who he is. He has to throw around his historical snippets for everyone to know. Guess what? I already know them. Don't mansplain history to me. I felt, I did, I felt like a lot of this movie, I felt like the character of Pat was mansplaining shit to me and I hated it. I totally agree with you. Like he's the pompous, (laughs) self-important asshole that is like, I am right because X, Y, and Z. And the thing that I was thinking the entire time is... And guess what? Even when he faces consequences, he's not, it's not going to make him think he was the one who was wrong. And the thing is, history can tell you a lot. But history cannot tell you about something that has never happened before. Very true. So you need to have a healthy understanding of the fact that there are things that you don't know you don't know. Yes, and operate I agree. Because well, he is such a student of history, which is partially why he's like so good at his mm-hmm. job of waging war is because he studied all of these things and everything. And, you know, to a certain extent, it almost makes him predictable, except for we're shown that even when you have somebody in the German staff who's like, he's going to do this because that's what the Athenians did when they like entered and he thinks he's this reincarnated soldier. You have some guy being like, no, he won't. And it's like, well, that's exactly (laughs) what he does. So if you're right, like you have to understand that like knowing history is really good, but then you also have to be able to take it the next step and be like, okay, but how is this situation different from what that situation was? And therefore what could be the impacts and he just can't go that extra step. He's a very rigid personality mm-hmm. and that that shades everything he does. Oh, it does. And I mean to to kind of drive that home, I I don't think we need to talk in super big detail about his arrival in Morocco like at the actual base, but he comes early. He immediately is greeted by like a shoddy poorly dressed like undisciplined core. I mean, the scene mm-hmm. that sticks out is the one in the canteen where it's like, oh, we're open six to eight. Well, no, six. And if they're not there by 6.15, you're closed. Like, it, it's things like yeah. that that show how rigidly militaristic he is and, like, how much he's into this idea of a tightly controlled set of soldiers. That looks good yes. and, like, it's on top oh, of its shit. He talks He's very about into appearances. The, the uniform that he designed that was like, oh, the tankman's uniform with the red stripe and the buttons going across the chest. And I was like, sir, <sighs> sir, do you not know that the number one lesson from World War One is no flashy uniforms because you will get shot? <laughs> like, 
He loves the pomp and circumstance. Patton fought in World I Yeah, no, he got wounded at one point in World War One. He was one of the early people who worked who like loved tanks, mm-hmm. which is why he becomes a great tank commander in World War II, where tanks really, really take off. Um but it's like one of those things where in that situation with Morocco, you're like, well, he's not wrong in this particular instance. Like that group definitely does need some discipline. Mm-hmm. And so he's able to whip them into shape. He, they become a very formidable fighting force so that the next time they're up against the Germans, they win. Yeah. Although this is my first don't pretend you care <laughs> moment was when hit one of his aides dies. And this is one of his aides that we liked. And then when this aide dies, he gets the new aide that we hate. But one of the aides dies and he's like acting super sad. And when I say acting super sad, I'm like, you don't really fucking He's care. got this like stony faced determination that's like, I'm going to be grim and stereotypically toxically masculine in a way that I'm not allowed oh to my show God. emotion, but I care. This character is poster boy of toxic masculinity. <laughs> but like, it's, it's like you, you care on the surface, but not enough to make you ever really actually evaluate anything that you would mm-hmm. do. Like the fact that there's a high number of casualties, he's like, oh yeah, there's even one point where Bradley's like, have you seen the casualty list? He's like, yeah, I saw it. And he's like, cool, do you care at all? No. You can't hear cool. me roll my eyes, but I just did. Right. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, when you're in a situation like that, it's like, yeah, you can't, it's one of those things where I, I mean, obviously I've never been in war, so I don't really know. But what I imagine is that it's a situation where you're like, this really sucks. I'll deal with this later. Yeah. Your coping like you, mechanism is to pack it away to think about at a later point in time. And then you and then you grieve later. I don't think Pat never grieves. <laughs> I think he just packs it away. I mean, does he have emotion? I don't even think he packs it away. I don't think he he's not an empathetic character. I don't think the character has a lot of empathy yeah. at all. I totally agree with you there. Totally. I just I never buy that he's ever truly sad or feels sorry for like any loss of life at any point. Whereas Again, I feel like this is the difference between that character and the character of Bradley, where Bradley is still going to get the job done, but Bradley genuinely cares and feels mm-hmm. sad that like people have died. Yeah. Well, and even the the first infirmary scene where he wants the two soldiers with self-inflicted wounds moved, where like they're cowards, X, Y, and Z, and there is no battle fatigue. Like this, this belies a complete misunderstanding of the human psyche. Like... I realize at that time we didn't understand. PTSD yet. wasn't a thing yeah. yet. And honestly, like Vietnam was a big turning point in like understanding of things like PTSD. I think like like they were calling it battle fatigue. And shock. I think like way back when it was shell shock. Yeah. yeah. Like it wasn't a real understanding, which I have a note later that when we talk about the other hospital scene, but um, it's the way he also like at one point calls the hospital like a place of honor. And I'm like, really like bleeding from your guts feels honorable to like, well, and after he said nobody won a war by dying for their country, like, yeah, make they won it by making the other guy die for his, which like, that's a great line. Oh, that was a but, good like, line. really good line. <laughs> yeah. It's a really good line. But like, yeah, I just, every, everything about, like his, the lens through which he views war is just so skewed and romanticized mm-hmm. in a way that's really frustrating. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, I, I think from like more of a 
cinematography, editing, directing sort of perspective. After that point, moving into the first confrontation with Rommel's Panzer Corps, whichever one it was. Yeah, yeah. Number five or 17 or two, I don't know. I loved Uh how they set this up. And this, I think, again, is one of the examples of why I genuinely loved the way this film was constructed. Because we go from the German, like, operations base where the one intelligence officer is talking about Patton and what he's thinking and what he's doing. I love the way they show all the different commands. Yeah. I think it's it's so interesting. And I also like the way where you have you have other people talking about Patton and I like having a bit where it's like this is what the other this is how the mm-hmm. other side views him and this is what they're thinking about and what they're taking into account. I think that's really cool. Like a very cool way to film this movie. Yeah, agreed. And then when they switch back to Patton and he's reading Rommel's tank warfare book, like that was just studying each other, like an an iconic shot for me with that book just like on his bed because he obviously fell asleep reading it like it. Oh, so, so, so good. And I mean, it even comes back after that that tank battle where it's Patton, because he is a military historian here, has set up his entire defense against this push on Rommel's theory of tank warfare. And he wins because of it. Right. Because, well, and because, so, you know, Patton's like the big U.S. great tank commander. Rommel was like the big great German tank commander. So you have these two people who are fighting each other with like the part of the army they both know Mm -hmm. and to some extent almost invented in the sense that it's like they're the ones who are like advancing the theory in this and everything. So it's really interesting, which is why Patton gets so angry later when word comes that Rommel wasn't even at the battle. But this is where we do get some interesting... And then you... Hold on, because then you get the suck up. Yes. It's like, well, because you you beat Rommel's forces, technically you still beat Rommel because you beat his plans and surely he planned it. And I was like, dude, get your head out of Patton's ass. Please. But no. Just like, are your lips glued (laughs) to his butt? If that is the... I hated that aid. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that is. I did too. As frustrated as I was with Patton, the aid was the one I hated the most. Well, and it's because he's just such a suck. Exactly. I don't like suck ups. Well, and I think if that he served to better characterize Patton in my mind, because if he is the sort of aid that Patton wants, like what does the that one say that's about always Patton? Always going to yes. Patton wants the yes yeah. man for sure, for sure. And I just, there's even a moment, though, this is also where I, like, further was like, man, I think I just hate, like, people who, like, suck up and, like, don't really, like, are afraid to contradict or, like, not share their opinion if it contradicts somebody in charge was when there's, like, the bit where Patton's praying and he, every time he prays, he talks like it's this fucking 17th century and it's not. I was like, if I was God. And then I was like, <laughs> "That's narcissistic," but we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna gloss over that. Um, I was like, "I'd be really bad." I'd be like, "Don't talk to me like it's the 17th century." I'm God. I'm omniscient. <laughs> I know what fucking year it is. <laughs> that just I don't know why, but him him praying using like these and thous really made me mad. Well, it fits with his character, though. Also, then praying for weather and then being like give that priest a medal because it stopped snowing. I'm like, no, you just got lucky. (laughs) Well, we've already established that he is an oddly superstitious but practical man. 
You're right. I was always I was going to say religious, but I think there is a superstition. Oh yeah, I don't believe that he ascribes to, to Christianity. I believe he ascribes well or has laid himself prostrate well, against a greater power, and it's about the power, not about the scripture. And it's more like a it's Christianity because that's the society he would have grown yeah. up in. I could see that. Yeah. I've, it's it's there is like a very religious superstitious aspect to him that like on top top of the like the rest of it just made me be like oh god this man is unbearable oh my goodness well and that i mean kind of moving along with the plot a little bit more after that first battle they're wanting to move into italy and so they're talking about sicily in particular and this is where i mean we got a, a short scene in morocco I believe it was supposed to be Morocco, where they visited an old battle site of like we're talking, like Roman era, Roman Empire era. Oh, this is this is where and when he's like, I can smell a battle. Exactly, this is the battlefield. And Bradley's like, it's two miles up the road. And he's like, Don't correct me. I know what I'm doing. And I'm like, You're nuts. Yeah. And that's when he gives his whole thing that like he's the reincarnation mm-hmm. of like all of these great generals yep. that he fought with, like various greek named generals who i don't remember and he fought with caesar and he fought with napoleon and not greek he's fought with napoleon and i just have multiple bits where i'm like no you didn't (laughs) (laughs) there's one in particular that i wouldn't forget that i definitely texted you about last night because i like couldn't stand it it's towards the end of the film Mm -hmm. we'll get there oh yeah we'll we'll talk about it but no again this characterization of him one the shots were gorgeous so i mean so pretty it also informs George C. Scott kills yeah. it. Like it informs so much about that character's decision making that like he thinks this. Mm-hmm. And it it's also gives you kind of this like interesting view of all of his military mm-hmm. strategy. And like you hear him talk about it, and then you also hear like the Germans talk about it, kind of how I mentioned earlier, with where he was like, Patton wants to land Montgomery at Syracuse, mm-hmm. and then he wants to land at Palermo and then go to Messina to cut off any sort of retreat. Which is like a rehash of some great invasion. It's how the Athenians invaded Sicily or something in the whatever BC. Montgomery, and Patton throws, this is also when I was like, Patton, you're such a suck up and I hate it because he throws this big elaborate dinner for like the generals Mm -hmm. and because like whoever the head of the allied forces are at the moment or something. Well, Eisenhower's head of the allied forces, but whoever's like, in charge of the Italian invasion um, to like convince them of his plan, which I was like, man, I wonder how those like normal soldiers who like are out there actually like fighting and dying would feel about this spread and all of the palaces that you get to stay in, which I later have a note where I was like, Patton, stop complaining about all the palaces you get to stay in, which is juxtaposed with the fact that Bradley's staying and it's like this trailer. I mean, it's a nice trailer. It's a nice trailer, but it's a trailer, (laughs) but but the camera specifically goes by this like not, this like larger farmhouse that he could have been staying in, but he's not. That's why they call him the GI General, and that's why we love we Bradley. love Bradley. Bradley, love I relate Bradley. to Bradley so much. I love Bradley so much. Bradley's the one who I would follow into battle. Oh, a hundred percent. I have so much more respect for him than I, I have respect for Patton's accomplishments, too. but not his person. <laughs> yes, yes, I respect his. I respect the character's abilities. I do not respect the way that he treats oh, other people. Agreed. Well, and I um, think the Sicily set of events is like a perfect example of... Yes. Well, because Montgomery then pitches his plan and wants to use his plan because Montgomery and Patton basically both want the glory of taking Messina. And this whole... So okay, again, fighting, this pissing match... maddens me. Ugh, yes. I hate it. 
I was your like, allies are supposed to be on the same side, but also I get it. Yes. But also put your fucking like ego aside for a minute. Yeah, it's like, okay, well, what's actually the better plan? Like, what is going to get allow you to take Sicily with the fewest loss of fewest possible loss of allied lives? Yeah. Like, what is what is going to be the best way? And then you do that. Like, it doesn't like who fucking cares about the glory? Who fucking cares? Well, Montgomery. And and it makes me mad. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? But it's because of this. Poor Bradley ends up in a terrible spot. Yeah, I felt really bad for Bradley. And I loved the one scene where he is in a normal helmet because his got blown off. And one of the enlisted men is like, who the hell is leading this? And Bradley's response is, I don't know, but they should hang him. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, this sense of humor is, again, why we love you, Bradley. We love Bradley. Um, You get it. So Bradley is forced at one point to give up this road that like he was supposed to take to Messina and give it over to Montgomery, which what that means. And here's an example of like where the politicking really hurts people, because what it means is that Bradley now has to fight his way over the like mountainous interior of Sicily, Mm -hmm. which means he won't be able to do as quickly. He's probably going to lose a lot more men. It's going to be a lot rougher fighting. What Patton does is because he's like, well, now a lot of my forces don't really have anything to do. So I'm just, despite being told basically don't do this, I'm going to push to Palermo and then go to Messina and I'm going to beat Montgomery anyway. And I'm like, no one fucking cares, but okay. And then he's he's leaving Bradley in the lurch, which Bradley gets really upset about. And then there's one part where he wants, once he's actually taken Palermo, Although there is the great line where someone's like Eisenhower wires him or something. Mm-hmm. And he's like, don't take Palermo. And they're marching through Palermo. And Patton's like, ask him if he wants me to give it back. I just, I like, that's, am. It's funny. It would be funny. And I'd love it if I didn't dislike that character agreed. so much. And the, the thing for me too, is when I think about. I like, don't give this man one-liners. <laughs> oh, I mean, or you can, it'll make the movie even better. Um, I, I like, I was a bit indignant about that one-liner, but it was a good yeah. one-liner. <laughs> it was a good one-liner. I mean, the writing the writing's really good. And George C. Scott delivers it really well. He definitely does. Like, I I can find basically no fault with his performance. No. And... Like, I mean, you're right. Like, there's no fault. Like, the fault with this movie is that I don't like the yeah. character. But, like, that's not... The point of this movie isn't for me to like exactly. him, I don't And think. the thing is, I will wholeheartedly recommend this movie for people to watch like it is it's long but it's also paced really well so it, it doesn't is. feel it is one long. of it is one of the better long movies that we have had as far as pacing it is paced well it is up there with like gone with the wind in my opinion it really is because like, this one was what a little over three hours just around under three. three not quite three just under three so it is it's not the longest we've done obviously but it is you know long enough to have an intermission mm-hmm. and i agree it is one of the best paced ones we have seen that are the longer movies yeah now to get back to Patton's like blatant disregard for orders i do not understand how as a man of a military mind can so willfully just ignore orders from his commanding officer Ian, it's because people should listen to him, and if people disobey him, it's an issue, but he's always right. So, like, when he disobeys, it's like, I don't know, like, civil disobedience or something. Like, it's because he should. Again, you can't, you cannot hear the look that I just gave Maggie. (laughs) But it was... Could I be more sarcastic? I don't know. Yeah, no. You could, probably, if you tried. And that wasn't meant to be sarcastic. (laughs) 
<laughs> we'll get we might get there. We might get there. Um So yeah, I, I that part I'm just like you're infuriating again. The fact that I think it's infuriating, such a testament to the movie. But it's infuriating. And like, you know what? Here's this here's the scene where I think you go from that like really highlights the line that the character has crossed that makes Totten go from, you know, good general who's just not being listened to to glory hound narcissistic doesn't care Mm -hmm. and that is the scene where he wants this other general to land some amphibious troops behind the germans as he pushes into messina and the guy comes in and bradley's like this is gonna be rough like we're gonna lose a lot of people is this really the best play right now the other general is like we have had so many casualties. He's like, I don't know if I can do this in the timeline you want it to happen. Cause Patton's like, I want this to be like tomorrow or something. He, I think he wants it in like two days mm-hmm. or something. And Bradley and the guy are like, can you just give us like one more day? The guy's like one more day and I can make this happen mm-hmm. for you. But I just need an additional day. And Patton refuses because he wants to beat Monty to Messina. And I'm like, if you gave this guy the one more day he's asking, so you don't make it to Messina before Monty, but maybe fewer people die. Maybe him and his troops are more prepared so that there isn't this, like there's like a throwaway line later when they're talking about having to break through where Patton's like, I need you to break through this bit. And if you don't do it in four, he relieves a guy from mm-hmm. command. He's like, if you don't do it in four hours, I'm relieving you too. And it's like, well, if you'd given that guy the extra day, maybe they wouldn't be like such a rush to need to break through and like cost even more lives in order to rescue those people because maybe they could have gotten more supplies or men together. Like, Again, I don't know. he's like, optimizing to the wrong variable. Yes, yes. He's optimizing oh, to God. expediency, not to minimum loss of life. I'm not going to lie. That is the first time your IE-ness has not made me roll. <laughs> <laughs> for context, Ian once yelled at me for walking inefficiently in college. I mean, you were. I call it as I see it. <laughs> That's why I drew you a rude cartoon about it. It's fine. I Um, deserved the cartoon. Did one of us keep that cartoon? I think so. I don't know where. But also, I fully appreciate the fact that I was a very insufferable person at the beginning of college, and I hope that I chilled out in the last, you know, eight years. It's okay. I was also insufferable at the beginning of college. (laughs) I've just become more insufferable. Differently insufferable? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Oh, no. (laughs) Probably differently. I'm kidding. I think I've chilled out. Um, That's why we bonded. Yes. But yeah, I think that scene completely highlights Patton's unwillingness to budge, even when it might actually be the best option. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where you see him crossing that line. Well, and he immediately crosses the next line by killing two donkeys that are blocking his path. Like, Okay, I actually, mm, I'm torn on this because the reason he does it is because the donkeys are blocking his path and their entire column is blocked on this road. And they're being strafed by German planes. So actually, the donkeys are causing a legitimate issue. Like, is it brutal and awful that he shoots them? And as far as I can tell, does not compensate the man whose donkeys he shot. But like, I also actually kind of understand the need for that. It's like two donkeys versus like... 50 or more men yeah. could be killed by strafing German planes. I so that one I'm not necessarily going to fault him for. But I, still, I wish uh, he'd just been nicer yeah. about it. If there's a way to be nicer about that, I don't know. I mean, here's the thing. I wish he could have compensated the guy. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and were there not enough men to literally drag them? Apparently not. I don't That's know. the other thing where I'm like, you could have just dragged him out of the way. 
it's his thing about it. It's almost, it's another piece of evidence for his absolutism in certain aspects, which in some ways serves him well. Like this probably served him well overall, even though I was pissed. Sometimes his decision-making and his like bullishness on needing to do something, sometimes it is the right call. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, sometimes it isn't, and his inability to distinguish that becomes a huge issue. Oh, yeah, very quickly, actually. So I love that, I mean, almost immediately after this, I think we get a view from uh, Montgomery's perspective coming into Messina, which one... This was the biggest, most dickish move, (laughs) and I was like, what the fuck? Like, it really was. Like, I was like, you don't need to do this, because guess what? Monty handled it with class. He did. He he was not happy, but he handled it with class. And Padden was a big old jerk. Well, and also, okay, so to like go off on a tangent for a hot second, 1970s bagpipes are the worst. The worst. Like for a total random aside, this was prior to electronic tuning, and they just didn't tune them. And so it's just this horrible cacophonous noise that I cannot stand. <laughs> I love that they just wouldn't tune their instrument. I mean, yeah. <sighs> I'm going to start playing my violin that way. Untuned. Just do it just when your upstairs it. neighbor has their dog running around. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be my petty revenge. There you go. You know what? Here's This is kind of weird because sometimes I love a petty character. And Patton's a very petty character, but I don't love him. It's because his pettiness costs lives. Yeah. I think that's what it is. It's I I am up for some good delicious pettiness. As long as no one's really hurt. Exactly. It's gotta be like low stakes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Monty marches into Messina. He's got his untuned bagpipes playing. And then he gets there. Patton's already there. They exchange some quote-unquote witticisms. And then as Monty <laughs> continues marching with class and dignity, even though he lost this little pissing match, Patton makes the American troops strike up their band and, like, try and drown them out. So, you, I mean, I get I the symbolism's great in the movie where you have the, like, opposing sounds of the two armies to show the fact that, yes, they're allies, but they're not actually working together. But also, you're not going to drown out those bagpipes. But also, Sorry just like, it. fuck you, who cares? Just let Monty have his parade. You got there, you won. You said some witty shit. Like, let it go. Like, take the high road. Like, when you when you have to stoop that low again after that victory, like, now you've tarnished your victory. You got to be the right amount of petty. When you go too far, you go too far. Yeah. And then you're just an asshole. Yeah. I think prior to this, too, there was a, an infirmary scene that is important for kind of the next little set. Of, yeah, I don't remember um, if that's before vignettes. or after Messina, but it's it's it, very important. Regardless, this I, I I really loved this infirmary scene because it showed two completely bipolar aspects of Patton. But also, I was like, don't so, act like you fucking care. Uh, well, yeah. So the first is he is coming into the infirmary talking to some men like, oh, let me make a joke about a dead German because you got shot in the chest, which... I hated that joke. If I'm that guy, I'm like, that's great, but like, I'm still shot in the chest. Yeah, would have preferred like, to I don't not be care shot. That, like, like, okay, cool. You killed a... Ger- like, you saw a dead German. Guess what? I saw like my guts. Yeah. But then he goes over to a much worse wounded man. The guy who's on like a ventilator. Exactly. And gives him the purple heart. 
kind of like touching in some sense and the emotion that I saw from George Scott's performance. Like it was there, but it was brilliant because it was only on the surface yeah. and you couldn't like see it come go past his eyes. I don't buy that that character is actually that sad. It's like a show of compassion because he knows that's what he's supposed to do, but he doesn't actually feel it. Well, and it's almost like a, it's this similarly to how I see him pray, where it's like a reverence for, I respect your actions. They were good. Yeah, exactly. Well, and there's a line later on where it's like, the men can't tell when you're performing and when you're not. And he's like, that's for me to know. Yeah, he's like, it only matters if Um, I can tell. And I'm like, can you? Uh, at this point, I don't know. I but immediately, it. <laughs> agreed. But immediately following that kind of tender, more tender exchange, quiet exchange, um, you get to him going over to a guy who is shell shocked, like he he is a mess, really bad PTSD. And my whole point with this, and he's freaking out because he's like, this guy isn't wounded. He's in this place of honor with all these men who are wounded, and I'm. And I love all the rest of the soldiers' reactions because they're like, I don't fucking know what's going on. Like, why is he having this outburst like this? Right. But like, just because that guy wasn't shot doesn't mean he isn't wounded. Yeah. Like, and of course, again, this is before they really had a grasp on like PTSD and people were really like concerned and studying the psychological effects of warfare Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. The thing that gets me is he's all about the appearance of it being, quote, cowardly. With zero understanding of the fact that this poor soldier. Who knows what he saw? Well, and he probably is not going to be an effective soldier. That is another thing because he's yelling for them to put that guy back on the front line because he's a coward. And it's like, cool, you're probably not only going to get him killed, you'll probably get a lot of other people killed because he's not going to be a good soldier. He's not going to have people's backs the way that, like, you need to have your, to know that your fellow soldiers have your back up at the front like that. Like, it's it, it's so interesting to me the difference between like that particular mindset versus something like all quiet in the western front when people are living mm-hmm. a few years after world war 1 and i wonder if it's because this movie was made and i do think there is some commentary in this movie i wish there was more i wonder if it's because it was made so long after world war 2 because if you think mm-hmm. about things like best years of our lives which Best years of our lives, I think it was like, what, 1945? Yeah, it was super close to the event. Right when it's happened, there's a lot more sympathy for that psychological impact because I think people Mm -hmm. are really living with it. And like All Quiet on the Western Front, which is 1930, so it's, you know, a little over 10 years away from World War I, but you're still, still dealing with these like super devastating effects and you're dealing with a lot of the psychological issues. I wonder if it's because, I mean, one, it's telling this particular story of this particular character uh, based on actual events because there mm-hmm. was like the slap and stuff. But I wonder if part of the like viewpoint is because it's so far removed. Well, or it's very deliberate in that we're we're talking about what korean war era vietnam yeah we're set we're at least five years into official u.s involvement in vietnam yeah so you you have people coming back with ptsd and i'm almost thinking that might have been a deliberate thing to kind of show like hey this dude had some really not great qualities and this is one of them so or it's hollywood that has always been gotten flack from the more conservative 
parts of society for being like super liberal and like mm-hmm. at times unpatriotic Chuck McCarthy era, even though we're a little bit further away from that. And then being like a kind of like how we talked about wings sort of was at the time that it won being like a no, 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 this mm-hmm. is like a patriotic film and stuff. But I don't, I don't know. I'm honestly so torn sometimes on this movie as to like what the writers and like directors wanted me to get from it and whether or not they want me to side with Patton. And I just mm-hmm. don't know. And I'm torn. And maybe that's the point is that they didn't care if I sided with him or against him, but they're going to tell the story with this character. Like, I just, I don't know. Yeah, I'm right with you. I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I am exceedingly impressed with what he was able to accomplish. Do I wish his means were different? Yes. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I think it is takes kind of the worst, most callous type of person to take the route that doesn't save the most human life. And that's just like a core belief of mine. Yeah. But then it's also like, are you talking about saving the most human life in this particular battle? Or are you looking down further down the road? Well, and the thing is, is one does one day matter in the grand scheme of things for down the road? And I don't know the answer, but I struggle to believe it made a difference in this context, like in specifically that Sicily confrontation. Oh, no, no, no. I agree. I think one day it's like, come on. Yeah. So it, it's conflicted. And again, brilliant piece of filmmaking because I'm like, okay, I don't know. I know. Like the <laughs> fact that I'm like watching it and I'm like, I don't know what you want. Like I know what I think, but I don't know what the filmmaker wants me to think, which like mm-hmm. might be the brilliance of this is that they gave you enough structure, plot, character, et cetera, to develop some sort of emotional reaction but they left it completely open-ended as to what emotional reaction you're going to develop Mm -hmm. yeah so coming out of that scene where he literally smacks this soldier with his gloves which is like the most insulting way to smack somebody i mean 100 on purpose that choice was amazing like perfect choice for the scene um he he is he's reprimanded personally well also just like can we talk about the level of emotional instability that showed like i don't I don't want my leaders who need to be making logical yeah. decisions showing that much emo- like for somebody who like is so much into like toxic masculinity, he's very emotional, very emotionally <laughs> driven. So But they're masculine emotions, Maggie. That, there's no difference between masculine and feminine emotions. There's just emotions and then there's logic. For anybody who is curious, like, I am definitely no just trying to poke the bear with that I comment. I know, but the bear is so pokeable today. So. <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm having images of irritable. Winnie the Pooh right now and getting poked and just giggling. I know, under <laughs> under my quarantine diet, I'm getting a little rounder like Winnie the Pooh. Oh my so. goodness. <laughs> Apt analogy. So he's re- reprimanded for this, and it's like, you must apologize to literally okay. everybody. Everybody who was that soldier, everyone who was present. Also, it's a personal reprimand, but it's also kind of brilliant because it's like Eisenhower knew the thing that would make him the most angry. Because like somebody with the personality of, of Patton, the worst thing that you can make them do is have to apologize. 
Though then I got yeah, really angry because like you call that a fucking apology. That's not an apology. It was not a he makes apology. It, he, when he makes it uh, a production and all about him, he's supposed to apologize to them individually, but he doesn't. He just does it in like this big speech and he's like, he still calls the guy a coward. And he's like, this is why I did it. So I guess I shouldn't have, but I hope you understand my motivations. And I was like, that's not a fucking apology. And he like tries to be not. funny. I was like, no. This is not his character. But again, we know he's not a people person, and this is no. just furthering that. But it just, I, non-apology apologies are just annoying. They're really the worst. But th- then his goddamn aide rolls right into the fan mail. I, and I'm like, 89% I like, in favor. Okay. give this man fan mail. Oh, 89% in favor. I'm sorry, but the vast majority of people who don't like you aren't going to send you letters. They're just going to not like you and not worry about you because they don't like you. Like, I don't tell right. everybody I don't like that I don't like them unless it comes up and they're like, do you like <laughs> me? And then I'm like, no. But I'm oh not going to just... I'm not I want to know gonna... how often that's happened to you. <laughs> it's happened like once where somebody was like, do you not like me? And I was really bad. And I was like, no. But like, you know what I mean? Like, if you don't like somebody, you're probably not going to go up to them and be like, I don't like you. Like, no, you're just not going to have anything to do with them. Exactly. Because guess but what? This rolls... Not everything's about you, Patton. But he's brilliant. So everything is, obviously. Just because you're brilliant doesn't mean you can be an asshole. Doesn't it? No. <laughs> and our society is far too forgiving of it among certain demographics. Well, yeah. So... He ultimately, like after that non-apology, is overlooked for leading the forces I into I wonder Europe. why. And he's surprised. He is And I'm like, surprised. at least somebody understands that you have to be able to handle your emotions your people and be inspiring, not just feared. Yeah. Nobody, somebody understands that like he's emotionally unstable and doesn't actually understand that like and bradley even says it later he's like generals aren't just generals anymore like you're also a politician and he doesn't understand how to play the political game and how he doesn't understand this i don't know how can you talk about military history without talking about diplomacy i was gonna say can we talk about the fact that actually generals were never generals they always had to also be diplomats and ambassadors let's talk about his favorite general who he always likes to talk about napoleon Napoleon was like, sure, he was a general, but he was also a really good politician because how else do you think he was able to get the clusterfuck that was the terror of the French Revolution to like stop and rally behind him? Like, it wasn't by fear. <laughs> Maybe a little bit by Caesar. fear. But... Let's talk about Caesar. Like, turned the what was the greatest republic the world had ever seen into a monarchy. Purely mm-hmm. through like political maneuvering and like yes military strategy, but like there's there's always been another component there. So you're right. It's like you want to study these people, but you only want to study them in a particular context, and you don't understand what led to this battle. Like what led to this battle? Why did the battle have to happen? What was the fallout from the battle? All of the interesting bits, uh, right? All like, of the stuff that's not, really fun to study. Not to like min- trivialize or minimize the actual fighting in any way, because like. It's a big deal, and especially for the people involved. Like, But at the same time, like in the larger picture, it's like you win the battle, but you don't win the war. And if you don't understand the bigger picture, you can't win the war. But yeah, he, the job goes to Dreyfus, I should say. Um, and we get our intermission. So after intermission, we kind of cut back. There's a bit where uh, Patton's definitely still being punished. So he didn't get put in charge of the Italy invasion. He's kind of being used as like this figurehead. Uh, because he is one of, if not the best general that the U.S. has. So the Germans are very convinced after losing Italy that 
the Allied invasion of France is going to be led by Patton. They're very convinced of that. And so the Allied forces are using Patton as kind of a decoy. They have him either out kind of in the Greek area. So they're like, oh, it'll come through Greece. Or they have him in Calais. So they're convinced it'll come through Calais. Meanwhile, you have Rommel, who after losing Africa is no longer in favor, being like, uh, I think it's going to come through Normandy. And they're like, no, 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 no. You're wrong. Patton and Calais. <laughs> so they're like refusing to move one of their like big military units from Calais, which means that when the Allies land in Normandy, mm-hmm. there's less resistance than there could have been. Yeah. But you know what I love about this whole sequence? That Patton's really pissed off that he's like, oh, well, chilling in a palace and mad that he can be a that he has to be a decoy and i'm like dude think of the big picture like the plan's fucking working like exactly and the thing is this is a plan he never would have come up with Mm -mm. ever no well but it's working beautifully he talks about the he actually wanted to invade through calais i think because he was like so and so did it this way and it's like well guess what So and so the Germans not also know that. Yeah, like they also know that, and they know that you will want to do that, and they think that the thing's going to come from you. So, like, actually, right. yeah, he's if it's not his plan, he doesn't think it's good, and that's an issue. Oh yeah, well, and he also shows some of his political uh, missteps again, and even worse in the sequence. So he's giving a speech to like the Donut Club in some what British a town. Great club. I want to be a part of it. Um. But it it sounds like he's like given the speech that's like, all right, here, let's be patriotic and be the new world order with the UK and the US and completely forgets Russia. It's a big deal. It's a, it's a very big deal. And it was always, there was always like tension between like the US and the UK and Russia. And of course, you know, after World War II, you have the Cold War happening. But it's like at that time, like you just, you just have to be careful and he mm-hmm. can't he can't keep his mouth shut. He gets mad that other people get mad that he does something stupid. And he also just like hates the Russians, which he makes abundantly clear multiple times. He's like, I just hate them. And I'm like, okay, cool. But, but like, calm the fuck down and focus up on what's happening right now. And maybe like, don't piss off the allies who have had like hundreds of thousands of soldiers and civilians like dying and fighting. Yeah. And- I do love how well George Scott like drums up his charisma in this though. Cause I do, even though he doesn't really have people sense, he does have some charisma when he needs it. Also, why is he talking to press? And he gets mad I mean, every time great he's question. like, he keeps being like, I just said a few things off the record. It's never off the record. Like, I don't think that's actually a thing. No, right? Just being like, this is off the record. Doesn't mean you can just say shit. <laughs> God, stop letting this man talk to press. Like he doesn't, he doesn't get. Also, why is he still talking to press? Like I don't. But Bradley brings him back in because Bradley is saying, you know, we're stuck in these hedgerows in Northern Europe. Mm-hmm. We're fighting. I think he says like we're fighting for yards or something, and um, or acres. And so he wants to put Patton in charge of Third Army, which uh, has a very mm-hmm. strong tank corps, and he wants him to basically swing under and around to come up against the Germans. And do some pincering right which Patton's like yeah totally no and I'll follow orders and I'll like keep my mouth shut and we're all like yeah right he does to a point so I will give him that he does it a little bit no 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 he does until somebody asks him to do something he doesn't want to as long as it's all in his favor he's a good general when it's not 
something that he wants to be doing anymore because he's like, I'm just going to start pushing towards Berlin. And then Bradley takes away his gasoline because one thing for one thing, Patton's pushing so far in like there is you got to supply him somehow. Supply lines are very strained. There's like a danger of being overextended. mm -hmm. There's also like other parts of like other forces that are meeting harder resistance at the moment and you need to channel some resources to them so that like you don't so that you don't have an issue where like that basically is what happened in the battle of the bulge where the germans break through and you can still lose the war so mm-hmm. Patton gets super pissed off because his gasoline's been taken away and then there's this really awful fight where that comes down to like hand-to-hand fighting with one of his tank crews because they didn't have the gasoline to be able to to leave or so they like it was them supporting an infantry regiment and then they didn't have the gasoline to either fully go into support or retreat and so like it's just it's just this awful completely avoidable too completely avoidable like why were you still pushing (laughs) Patton insisted on pushing and stuff and then he gets mad because he's like they should give me stuff and i'll go take berlin and it's like you taking berlin is not the point of this like, it's not all about you. And, like, you pushing towards Berlin could actually be a dangerous for you and other parts of the army. Right. And, again, it's that lack of big picture sense. He doesn't care about winning the war so much as he cares about him winning the war. I mean, yes. That's why he went to Messina early. He just He's all about the glory, and he talks about it a lot. It's super annoying. Which I do love when they juxtapose him talking about glory with like some awful battle that's happened. And it's like, so what do you think of this? Is this glory? Well, it's like to jump ahead like a quick second. He's reading that prayer for good weather. And he's reading that prayer against a visual backdrop of the actual fighting and people getting flamethrowered and exploded and run over with tanks. Well, and then there's the line about our blood, his guts. Yes, our blood, his guts. Um, and I think, but I think somewhere around that, like when you have him walking along that bat. Oh yeah, it's when he's walking on the battlefield because he also leans over and kisses that soldier on the forehead. And my, I was like, you get away from him, personal space. Okay, again, his like physical. He has a Christ complex. Yeah, well, and he does that multiple times. With the yeah, with like the forehead kiss, I was like, it's creepy, it's unwanted. They did not ask for this. You did not ask for consent. That is a major personal space violation. Also. Christ complex. And this is where I just like died and was like texting you in all caps. Yeah, I, I remember this. He gives this little speech to the kiss up aide and is like, you know how I know that they're finished? Because they're using wooden carts. I had a dream and there were wooden carts in the dream and I didn't know what it meant. And then I remembered that retreat from Moscow, how cold it was. We put all of our supplies on car, or they put all their supplies on carts and left. He's talking about the Napoleonic campaign in Russia, and basically with his whole like, I'm a reincarnated soldier who fought Didn't Napoleon. I we? was there. He, I, I turned, I rewound it multiple times because I couldn't figure out if he said we or they, and the subtitles said they, but the subtitles okay. could have been wrong. So he either said we or they, but. Either way, he's talking about his whole, I'm a reincarnated soldier. I fought with all these people, including Napoleon. He's talking about Napoleon's Russian campaign and the French retreat from there. No shit. They put their stuff on carts. It was 1812. What else were they supposed to use? (laughs) 
That's not a sign that they're done. Because he's saying that the fact that they're using carts is a sign that the German resources are out. And that's how he knows that they're done is because they're using carts instead of Jeeps. Well, guess what? That wasn't a good indicator in Napoleonic times, sir. Maybe you would have known that if you'd actually been from there, sir. So I think he stumbled upon the right answer, even if the way he got there was totally batshit wrong. I'm not going to lie. That was like the full breaking point for me. I was like, no, that is not how campaign of 1812 went down he's insufferable and this like mysticism that he likes to ascribe to i just don't i'm not also, on board it's like you know when you're talking to somebody and they start describing a dream and you like couldn't care less <laughs> that's what he just did but his aide couldn't say that because power no structure. his aide probably wanted to listen his aide was like oh my god you had a dream tell me all about it i just i only want to hear about is your dreams tell me let me let me consult my celestial charts and <laughs> tell you what it means <laughs> oh wait you think it means something different no 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 you're probably right <laughs> my chart's wrong <laughs> oh my god yeah that uh, uh but it's such him so we get the next set of scenes as they're like trying to mount a winter well I, I did actually appreciate this part. The There is a bit where he says the Germans haven't launched a winter attack since like Frederick the Great, but the, I think that's exactly what they're going to do, basically because they're so desperate. And they do. They mm-hmm. attack at, in the Ardennes. The Battle of the Bulge happens where they break through lines and there's literally like a bulge in like, if you mm-hmm. were to draw like a map of the military lines. Um, and the 100, it's the 101st, I think, airborne unit gets stuck in this town called Bastogne. Which, if you've mm-hmm. ever watched Band of Brothers, which I highly recommend, they go very in-depth into that. But um, you have, I think, is it Bradley who's, like, trying to figure out, like, who can get to them and who can help? More or less. But there's there's somebody who's, like, who can get to them and help. And um, Oh, and he says, 48 hours, I'll be there. Because he's already been drawing up plans for it, because he was already, like... I can do it and go in there, which like, again, this is really great military strategy. And it that like that is the type of forethought I wanted to see from him where he's like, okay, we need to get in there. We need to get this done. So this is how I think we should do it. Let's go ahead and start preparing. And then if they like give us the okay, we'll go, we'll be ready to immediately do it. Instead of just doing it because you think it's the right answer. Or just doing it because you want to get to Messina before Monty. This, this is the type of forethought I want to see, you know, where it's like a... Mm He's saved by going ahead and prepping there. He's saving time on preparations, which means once he gets the go ahead, he can get in there faster. And like, again, in 48 hours, which everyone kind of scoffs at. But he's like, no, 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 we've already made preparations. And then somebody says something about like your men marching. He's like, that's like 100 miles with like no rest. And he's like, do you think they'll do it because they like you or something? And he's like, no, they'll do it because they're trained to do it. Which like, I mean, he's he's not wrong. He's Got a very good, highly trained army. But I also feel like being like, hey, we need to go save a bunch of people who are like trapped in this little town. I feel like nobody's going to be like, "Mm, I'll pass. I'm tired. Like, Probably not. But I mean, the consideration of people who are tired perform less well, like that is pretty elementary. He never has that consideration, (laughs) but he is able to get up there and he is able to help. So I feel like that is a good example of him actually being like good in his planning Mm -hmm. and like good in his like drive and everything and his bullishness but Mm -hmm. that is you know contrasted to the many times when he is not (laughs) yeah now i I think that whole sequence of them getting up to balone bastone bastone different town um i loved it i loved it the soundtrack was so great 
because it had this like patriotic fife and drum that is like almost broke into when Johnny comes marching home, but was like not that. It was reminiscent enough, though, that it kind of built this like patriotic feel. And you had that contrasted with the German theme that was like super, super, super different. So we got this like interspersion of the German army doing things and Patton's army doing things. And I just against the backdrop of snowy, wintry Europe was just gorgeous. Yeah, it's very that whole entire sequence is very well constructed. Um, Let's see what happens after that. It's just kind of like a race to like when they take Berlin, right? Yeah. Well, and also I just want to, there's something I want to bring up is how so much of this movie is intercut with um, newsreels of the time. Mm -hmm. The way, where they decide to do the cuts, and I feel like this is where that best editing Oscar comes in. The way they, when they decide to cut into the newsreel, it's always either they cut from a really horrible war sequence or they cut to a really horrible war sequence after. And it's always this really great juxtaposition of the like, squeaky clean patriotic reel that's being shown at home versus like the actual horror of what's happening right well and that sequence ends with that scene that i mentioned earlier about the prayer for good weather while the battle's going on on screen like you hear Patton narrating and it i found that to be extremely powerful basically asking a higher power for success but when you look at what success means like it's there is horror to it. When the priest who he asks for the prayer even brings it up where he says, mm-hmm. I don't know about like praying so that we can kill people. Like he's, he's basically showing the like, there's kind of, there's a moral issue with that. That It's not black and white, but with Patton, everything's black and white because Patton's, Patton's right. Yeah. It's Ugh. it's very, it was a very, I loved the conversation with the priest. I thought that was very interesting. I did enjoy it a lot. Yeah. So it, it's pretty clear that they got their provided relief and we cut to a scene in kind of the German headquarter strategizer base. I don't know what to call it other than that. It's a bunker somewhere. Is the headquarters. Like. And we can tell that like Berlin's falling. There's like mm-hmm. burning everything. And there's the one guy who's like, not going to let the Russians get me and stuff. Right. But the one dude that we focus on is the intel officer who was researching Patton. And I kind of love how it ended where it's like, he's the pure warrior, an anachronism. Yeah, I thought they did that a little too reverently, though, for my taste. But I do like where he says something about, like, he's not going to know what to do when the war is over. That was a beautiful line. Beautiful line. Because then we get to see that happen. Exactly. At the party with the Russian leadership. Patton's that friend that you have who like always has to be the center of some drama. And if there isn't drama happening, he like has to create some because he can't just be happy and smile for like one fucking minute and let everybody have just like one nice fucking moment because they are at this big party. There is like great fun music happening. There's some very impressive dancing going on. I want to do those acrobatics. It looks so fun. I would pull something. So I did not try. (laughs) (laughs) But You have, like, there's the Russian, like, whoever the main Russian general is who's there and, like, his staff at one table. And then there's a little break and then there's Pat and his staff. And the Russian staff is, like, drinking. They're eating. They're, like, they're enjoying the fact that, like, the war is over. They've taken Berlin. And granted, like, at this, actually, the war is not over for anybody yet because you still have the, you know, 
uh, theater in the Pacific for both Russia and the U.S. But, you know, their their fight right now is done. Like, they did the thing. And Patton and his staff are over there all looking super sour-faced. There's some a couple little glasses of, like, clearly undrunk, what I'm assuming is vodka, I don't know, or some sort of cool German alcohol that they've pilfered. There's one guy, the waiter brings by some caviar. This one guy gets some and then Patton gives him a dirty look about eating it. And I was like, if I was that guy, I would have eaten it very slowly and maintained unblinking eye contact with Patton while I did so being like, fuck you, I'm going to enjoy this. Cause like, It's also pretty good caviar, I bet. Why would you pass that up? He has to be such an asshole about this. And then he tries to pick a fight with the Russian guy because the Russian guy's like, let's drink to the fact we took Berlin. And he's like, tell this guy I think he's a bastard. Which like, then the Russian guy's like, okay, tell him I think he's a bastard. And Ben's like, well, drink to that. And I'm like, to both being bastards. And I'm like, fuck you, just have something nice for once. Just let people be happy for like one second during all of this miserable shit that's going on. It does not have to be about you. Not everything's about you. And like, Deal with it. <laughs> Just deal well, with it. Well, but it is about him. No, it's not. <laughs> it, But it is, Maggie. This whole film was about Patton. Like, the title is Patton. <laughs> My logic is inescapable. You're not wrong. <laughs> I just, that, scene, you, that scene made me so angry. I was like, why? Are, like, there's no reason to do this. Except to start another war, which, ooh, ooh. Which ooh. he... Almost does. He wants to do. He wants well, to the so The scene badly. on the horse with the reporters in that barn arena thing. One, it was gorgeous. Holy shit. Two, stop talking to the press. You don't know how to do it. And he basically, th- this is where he's talking about not denazifying, which yeah. his argument is very rational. Yes. Well, because the policy once that was taken over was the denazification the idea was like anybody who was a member of the nazi party you took out of any sort of position of like authority going back to like running the telephones right or like even down to that level which Patton's point is like i'll get those people out of those positions when i have people who can competently fill their place like he's basically saying like i'm not going to take the guy who run who's like in charge of running the trains and scheduling the trains out of his position when I have nobody to replace him who could competently do that. And so it would potentially be like a lot of logistical issues if I did. It's rational, but it also shows how little he understands why that policy is in place. Yes. Like, and why it is like career suicide for him to not follow it. Well, and I think given his history, his response is like especially bad. I think if like, if it was Bradley... In a similar position being like, look, this is why we're not doing, like, we're actively looking for people Mm -hmm. who can do, you know, stuff like that. Like, it's, and also he doesn't seem to be finding a solution. Yeah, he's just riding this show pony around in this building. And then there's something where he, they're like, oh, is it true you hate Russia? And he's like, I'm not, he's like, no comment, which means yes. And then they ask him something else and he's like, I'm not going to answer that. And then he goes, but off the record, like, I want to fight Russia. (laughs) It's not off the record. It never is off the record. It's never off the record. Always assume it is on the record. Well, and that rolling into the next scene where he's sitting for this portrait, which gagged me. Also, by that time, I'm like, why do you have to actually sit by a portrait? Can't they take a photograph of me and then paint my portrait from the photograph? I mean, I don't know. But he's on this phone call with the one general, I don't recall his name, where it's basically like, I want to go start a war with Russia. I want 
want to say it's a member of Eisenhower's staff. Regardless, he lets his like true, as you put it, bellicose flag fly. Um, yes. Also, isn't that a beautiful word to describe something so horrible? Bellicose? <laughs> yeah. It comes from Latin. But anyway, that conversation, like it's clear. And we, we see him walking out of Eisenhower's office, the next scene where it's like downtrodden. I was fired. Like, no shit. You were fired. You were like manic on the phone being like, let me You're arm the Germans. Keg. I want to go fight the Russian. Like, it's to the point where it's like he's dangerous. Well, and he kind of was up until this point, but in a way that was tolerable because of the In a way that was useful. Right. Yeah. And now you no longer are useful. But he's leaving his staff. He like shakes all their hands. He gives this really empty speech about how it was an honor to have them like serve with them. And And they're all like, it was an honor to serve with you too, sir. And I'm like, fuck off. But George Scott's performance it's so good. was so amazing in that scene. No, he's so good because you believe that he genuinely doesn't understand why this is happening to him. Right. Even though it's really, right. o- really obvious to us. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing they did kind of moving into the final scenes is everything is giant and empty. So like this giant square outside of the office is empty except for some guards at the door. Mm-hmm. And you have Omar coming up saying let's grab dinner walking talking about being nice to him and i was like you don't have to saving him from an ox cart like oh yeah he does save him from the ox cart his Patton's reaction to that was kind of funny though where it's like look at what all i've been through and maybe that would have taken me out hardy har i want to say he died in a jeep accident in luxembourg and he's buried in luxembourg i thought he died of congestive heart failure hold on I thought it was a Jeep accident. I know he's buried in Luxembourg. I saw his grave when I was there at the American military cemetery there. No, he died in a car crash. He died after the car crash of a pulmonary edema and congestive heart failure. So we were both right, technically. (laughs) (laughs) The car crash touched it off. Yes, 100%. Well, apparently one of the last things he said was how awful war is. Think of the waste. I need to research the real person because I really hope that the real person had more redeeming qualities than the character of Patton. I would hope I, so. I, hope I would so. hope so. Like I, like I said, every criticism we've had, we're directing towards this character because I do not know enough about the real man to Same. be able to say anything. I do love the very end scenes though. After he's saved from the cart, he's just walking his dog out past the windmill into the nothingness, which I thought was kind of being sad. Yeah. Which makes sense. Cause it goes back to the, he's not going to know what to do when war ends. I mean, he doesn't. It's literally all he knows. It's all he wants. What a sad time. Yeah. It is interesting, too, because I I was just thinking about this, and obviously I know, like, Patton had a family. We don't get any of that in the movie. None. We get some mention of it just before the intermission. But we get very little idea of, like, any sort of home life, which I think reinforces that idea of, like, this is a person that, like, all he thinks about is, like, war and battles. And so without it, he really doesn't know what to do. Very interesting. Yeah. I, again, to sum it up, I've said it multiple times. I really, I enjoyed the movie. It's good. It is, it is undeniably good. I just really don't like Patton. Right. The character. Right. Which, <laughs> but again, the reasons you don't like him are because of how good the movie is. Yep. That's for sure. Well, that makes it so hard to rank. So I'm assuming we should, we should go into some ranks now. I think we should. I am with our with our new lists. Oh, thank God, it's our new lists. Thank goodness. 
Okay, cool. This is, I'm actually like okay with where I was going to, I thought about where I was going to put it and I'm actually very okay with it. Go for it. I'm right. Okay, so it is going to be my new number 16 above Lawrence of Arabia after Best Years of Our Lives. I'm very okay with it because I, when we were watching it, because like you said, it, there are a lot of parallels, I think, to Lawrence of Arabia and particularly to how we felt about Lawrence of Arabia mm-hmm. where we were like, it's an undeniably good movie, but I'm just, I'm so frustrated by the main character, but this did not have some of the pacing issues that I found with Lawrence of Arabia. There weren't those, um, gratuitous landscape shots and somebody looking longingly into the distance, uh, as many David Lean productions have. So at least when there were landscape shots and people looking out into the distance, we got a little bit of inner monologue, which I was yeah, thankful for. Yeah, they didn't leave it just empty. Um, but yeah, I think those two are very similar, but I I like Patton before Lawrence of Arabia because I think there's a little bit more layering to it. Um, and I thought the pace was better. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with the pacing comment like wholeheartedly. Oh, not as good as Best Years of Our Lives, though, because Best Years of Our Lives, I think, is even more impressive on the cinematography than Patton was. And I also liked the, like, psychological angle of it. And I found the char- I found the main characters more sympathetic than I found Patton. Uh, see, I'm, I'm struggling here right now. So for me, Patton feels like a mid-teens ranking for me. And that's where... I'm glad you said 16 because that's like roughly where I was thinking to slot it. And so really for me, I'm putting it right around the section after Bridge on the River Kwai and actually before Best Years of Our Lives. Okay. And I think for me... So what number is that for you? Um, well, now now here's, here's the rub. Tom Jones and Sound of Music is in there as well. <laughs> so I... Uh, like for me, I think I'm gonna end up putting it at about number fifteen. All right. Um, and so that is before best years of our lives, like one before. Yeah. But it falls after Bridge, Tom Jones, and Sound of Music. Cool. So we have it right in there together. Yeah. And I, I really think for me, the comparison with Best Years of Our Lives is I this movie made me felt much more felt. Wow. I can conjugate verbs. This movie made me feel much more passionately than Best Years of Our Lives did. And while I agree that there are aspects of the cinematography in Best Years of Our Lives that I think are better, like specifically that scene in the bar with, like that is the one that stands out in my mind right now. I I think as a whole, it was grander and bigger and better pulled off from a cinematography perspective. Fair enough. Um, Best Years of Our Lives did have a little bit of pacing issues. Yeah. And that that's really, like you, you put it perfectly, like the pacing is superb it's fair um now i'm putting it definitely after bridge on the river Kwai because i i think bridge i know you mentioned david lean but in that film his pacing's actually really good oh it's my it's my favorite one of his for sure i think there's a little bit that i think could be tightened up in the pacing but that's my favorite of his for sure and it's the Mm -hmm. earliest one of his that we've done (laughs) and i have a theory that the further along in his career he gets the more pacing indulgent issues there are. the more indulgent David <laughs> but the thing with bridge i i was much more invested in the characters than i was in Patton. so that that's really why it edges it out it is it is more character focused for sure yeah and i think that's also why i'm putting tom jones and sound of music above it because there's 
even though Patton is weightier than both of those films, the character developments are more likable. Um, I'm going to say that Sound of Music is still pretty weighty. It is, but their take on it makes it lighter at most times. Like, there are aspects of that movie that I agree are super weighty. It's it's um, weighty in its context, not so much in the film itself. Yes, exactly. I like that way to put it. Yeah, we both have it kind of right there. So, like, definitely, like, I would, rec- I would recommend this film to people. I, I think it's very good. I oh, still personally... No. Uh-oh. What happened? What'd you do? Ian, what'd you do? I was slotting it into my old list. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Okay. okay, give me give me a minute to like re Okay, I actually like this slotting even better. Okay. Okay. Oh, I actually love this so much better. I'm putting it a little bit higher at number 13 actually. Okay. So in my list that puts it after in the heat of the night and before from here to eternity. So I think for me while I from here to eternity surprised me with how strongly I cared for the characters, I think the overall film construction, cinematography, all of that piece, editing even, like it just pales in comparison to Patton. Now, I cared about the characters a lot more, but as a whole, I think Patton edges it out. Well, I feel like I can't say that I didn't care about Patton. He just made me really angry. You know what I mean? Yeah, he like, made I, me feel something. Like I his actions I I've felt the impact of his actions. <laughs> and I feel like if you if you don't care, like you just have no emotion. Yeah. That's for sure. Um and then that after in the heat of the night. So yeah. for me in the heat of the night is just this slow smoldering edge of your seat sort of situation almost the entire film for me. I loved that film. And the performances of both Sidney Poitier and um, oh, who was the the Rod police chief? Yes, when like Rod Steiger also plays a pretty unlikable character in In the Heat of the Night, um, and plays him fantastically. Like right, but he, it's a character that undergoes some development. And mm-hmm. I will say that the thing with the character of Patton is he doesn't really change. He's the same person from the beginning to the end. And it's infuriating. Right. Um, Which is a commentary in and of itself in some ways, but like right. his refusal to change, but like he, you don't really see any character arc. Like I'm just as frustrated with him at the end as mm-hmm. I was at the beginning. Whereas I feel like uh, Rod Steiger's unlikable character and in the heat of the night, like you see him change. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, even though Patton's, editing and cinematography was superb i am honestly a sucker for some really good noir inspired filmmaking and like in the heat of the night those good shadows is like bar none you can't beat those good (laughs) shadows and we just didn't have good shadows in Patton. Mm -mm. we had beautiful non-shadows right i mean just so much there was a lot of daytime um but yeah i think honestly i at this is one of those things where even since we are so close to reordering, like somewhere in this range is where I want it. And I could probably make an argument to put it ahead in the heat of the night, but I really like as a movie that I liked in the heat of the night, I liked better. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I've in at the heat of, or in the heat of the night at number seven. Um, that was a big one for me, but I've like, we both have it in like teens. So we're in like three to four spaces of each other. Yeah, I would I would say like I recommend this one. I think it's a very solid film and it is one of the most iconic openings. For sure. But yeah, it's it's very good. It's another good one to hold up as far as like a way to pace longer films. 
but yeah, agree with Maggie. Definitely recommend it. I will say though, I still wish MASH had won, but I have a soft spot for MASH. I haven't seen it, so I need to watch it and then It's very decide. good. It, um, <laughs> Like I said, there are bits of it that are a little problematic, but it's still very good. It's a little bit more of like what you expect from like a 70s war film, I think, as far as like mm-hmm. commentary, a little bit of zaniness. Join us next time when we do The French Connection, which I'm actually pretty excited about. I've seen that one before, but I don't remember it super well, and I remember being confused by it. I mean, it is a an action crime drama, according to IMDb. So Yeah, I remember it being kind of like The Big Sleep, and where I was a little bit confused and was like, hmm, I'm going to need to watch that again. But I, then I haven't, so I'm excited to watch that one. But until then, if you want to find us on social media, we are at Best Pictures Pod on Instagram and Twitter. You can also email us in at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. And uh, rate, subscribe, and review, especially rate and review. That helps other people find us. Yeah. Thank you for listening. And as Maggie said, join us next time for The French Connection.